0: This program deals with sensitive topics that may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Michael J. From a very early age, music became the center of my world. But as my father always said, you don't choose music, it chooses you. This is Rock and Roll War Stories. While this podcast doesn't really tell a linear story, and will jump back and forth through time, it's actually best to start at the beginning, so I encourage you to go back and do that and start listening at episode one. Episode two. Exploding Boy Meets the Cowboys from Hell. Here we come. Reach for your gun. And you'd better listen well, my friend. You see, it's been slow down below. Aimed at you. We're the cowboys from hell. Pantera. Cowboys from hell. In the mid-1990s, my band Exploding Boy was at a crossroads of sorts. Our original bassist, my childhood friend Anthony's girlfriend, was pregnant. And he made the decision to step up and become a father and get married. I won't smooth things over here by painting things with some kind of golden brush. It was a stressful time for all of us, especially Anthony. All three of us were barely in our mid-twenties, and for Jason and I, this was a crisis for which neither of us had a playbook to refer to. We had recently recommitted to the band and were toying with the idea of either relocating or trying to find a national booking agency to put us on the road on more of a full-time or semi-full-time basis. I can't really speak for Anthony, but I assume that he felt like he wasn't given much of a choice in as far as his future with the band went. I know we didn't push him out, per se, but I also know that we didn't exactly make him feel like he had much support moving forward. His future with the band that we had all started together when we were barely 16 years old was suddenly shrouded in doubt. I can't imagine the fear and uncertainty that he must have felt at the time. Not standing by him or supporting him at that time in our lives is still one of the things that I'm most ashamed of and still most regret to this day. I think Jason and I were so driven in our desire to make the band succeed that we unwittingly made our friendship and partnership with Anthony a casualty in our quest for success. Our relationship waned for a few years as Jason and I went our way on the road and Anthony went his into marriage and fatherhood. But I'm grateful that after some time had passed that we were able to reconcile. Not after a whole lot of groveling and taking responsibility for being total self-centered dicks, I might add. Once Anthony was no longer in the band, we still had various show commitments to honor. So we asked our friend Paul Akers, bassist for another local Rochester, New York-based band called Hard Rain that had since disbanded to join us. Hard Rain were the only band in our local scene at that time to actually score a major label record deal in 1993 with EMI. The band was comprised of Paul, his brother John, drummer Eric Welch, and guitarist Rudy Valentino. They were by far the best and most accomplished band in town, and to this day, you won't find a single musician or live music fan who was around at that time that would disagree. We all looked up to them, and we would rarely miss a chance to go to their gigs when they performed in town. Their shows ended up being a veritable who's who of the local Rochester music scene at the time. We all went as much to study and learn from watching them as to try and draw some inspiration to kickstart our own bands. The very first time I saw them live, I remember leaving the show feeling a strange combination of utterly deflated and almost as if someone had lit the most gigantic fire under my ass. We need to get back in the rehearsal room and stay there for a long fucking time. So the fact that Hard Rain signed with a major label and headed off to Memphis to make a real record with legendary producer Joe Hardy came as no surprise to anyone. Joe Hardy by the way had worked with everyone from ZZ Top, The Replacements, Steve Earle, Georgia Satellites and Tom Cochrane to name just a few. Sadly, EMI chose never to release the record as was the unfortunate case with many, many bands back then, and Hard Rain became another casualty of the cutthroat music business. Bands rarely survived those kinds of disappointments, and Hard Rain was no exception. Exploding Boy took a year hiatus around that time in 1993. At the time, we called it a breakup, and we went off to try our hand at some different things. We had also suffered a fairly significant career setback not too long before that, a similar, unsurvivable setback to what Hard Rain had endured with their record label woes. We had recently signed to a label started by our manager, Tony Gross, called Beyond Records and had released our debut album called New Generation. Tony, with the help of a small group of attorneys, invested a fairly significant amount of money in us and in the label. We now had the wherewithal to record and master a record that could compete with the major labels at the time, both in quality and content, and we had a budget to promote it now as well. At that time, radio stations nationwide were still a bit like the Wild West in terms of their freedom to play whatever their program directors deemed worthy within reason. It wasn't all too uncommon for certain radio stations in major markets to actually break bands at that point. The Goo Goo Dolls were one such band. Their huge hit song name only became a hit after a certain station in a big market started playing it because the program director there believed the song was a hit and decided to give it a push. Once it was big in that market, other stations followed suit. And the rest, as they say, is history. I'm still not sure exactly how it happened, but we found ourselves the toast of our hometown for about a six-month period when two major rock stations in Rochester began playing our first single, a song called Charity, on a trial basis. As legend has it, the phones lit up immediately, and pretty soon we had the number one requested song at both stations during the day and at night. We were eventually moved into heavy rotation and saw our normal club draw of about 250 people skyrocket to nearly 2,500 each time we'd play. Lines around the block to get in. You couldn't listen to the radio back then without hearing our song at least once an hour, sandwiched between songs by the likes of Jimi Hendrix and the Gin Blossoms. We shot a fairly expensive music video for charity and a couple local television networks aired it and also got us on the local news. One of the big rock stations that was playing our song, called Rocket 95, happened to have a sister station located in Boston that was owned by the same people. They informed us that they were sending their program director to Rochester to come check the band out live and see about possibly pushing our song in Boston. We were so incredibly naive at the time. Not surprising. Anthony and I were only 19 and Jay was 20. We handled this newfound and rapid success in stride, but we thought, if it's a hit here... Going to be a hit in Boston, and then it will be a hit everywhere else. This is it, boys. This is our break. But we could not have been more wrong. By the time we had released our second single, a song called I Want to Be Where You Are, to the same two stations and were beginning to have similar response, the guy from Boston showed up to one of our sold out shows in Rochester to a crowd of several thousand crazed and enthusiastic folks at a place called Water Street Music Hall. And he promptly, and without mercy, pulled the plug. He claimed our demographic was, and I quote, too young. This goes to show you how completely different the climate was back then. You would never hear that today. We found out later that apparently that same guy took pleasure in shitting on the careers of a few other bands and artists over the years as well. Fucker. All the wind was knocked out of our sails, and we scrambled to get our footing and to figure out what was next for the band. Washed up at 19, we completely lost our musical direction, and our relationships with one another suffered as well. We had been together for nearly seven years at that point, and many cracks had begun to emerge in our foundation, and we crumbled under the weight. Anthony and Jay went off and formed a band called Cream Engine, which leaned heavily in a blues-rock type of direction and I continued writing songs and started playing solo acoustic shows. I'll give you one guess who was at odds with who. Just me, being a dick again. It was around this time that Hard Rain, also struggling to forge a path forward, reached out to me with an offer to join their band as a fifth member on guitar and backing vocals. I jumped at the chance, as this was the equivalent of being asked to join one of my favorite bands. I can't overstate how honored and grateful I was at the time. Every member of Hard Rain sang, and they were incredible musicians, all of them ranging from quite a few years to many years older than me. The truth is, I'm still living on things that I learned from my brief tenure with them. It wasn't uncommon at all for one of the members of the band to bring a song idea in at the beginning of a rehearsal, and by the time we'd be leaving several hours later, we'd have a fully realized and arranged live version of that song, complete with multiple vocal harmonies and full lyrics. And then we'd play the song out live, sometimes one or two nights later. This was completely different for me as Exploding Boy never worked that quickly. We would sometimes painstakingly hammer through things for months on end in our rehearsal room to find our parts and for me to finish lyrics on just a single song. Being witness to this insane level of creativity was mind-blowing to me. On top of that, hard-rain guitarist Rudy Valentino and I would plan separate guitar rehearsals where he and I would get together outside of the band to work out guitar parts for both existing songs and new songs. We'd always make sure to be playing complementary things and not getting in each other's way like guitar players can sometimes do. Unless we were doubling a heavy guitar riff to give it extra emphasis and power, our general rule of thumb was, if you're playing low parts, I'll play high parts, and vice versa. I was used to being the only guitarist in a three-piece rock band, so this was a brand new thing for me, but I learned so much about arranging parts and playing only what was necessary for the song from Rudy. There was no room for showing off. The band and the songs came first. Musicianship was always important to a point, but only in so much as it served what each song needed. Sadly, I only lasted about six months in that band, as the pull to be a lead singer again and to rejoin Exploding Boy became too great a thing to ignore for me. And also, sadly, hard rain didn't really last that much longer after that either things for all of us had unfortunately run their course. So asking Paul from Hard Rain to be an exploding boy as our new bassist after Anthony's departure seemed kind of like a natural thing to us. After all, we were all close friends and we shared common musical interests, so he agreed right away. We ended up signing with a local booking agency to do gigs both as an original act and our alter ego cover band, which was incidentally a 90s tribute act called Strictly Alternative. During that time, we played some rather... <clears throat> Special gigs, including a supermarket opening during which there was a bagging contest during our break. That happened. We played acoustically between the housewares and frozen food aisle. And no, I'm not kidding. There was also the infamous midnight blacklight bowling gig. Our stage was set up spanning two lanes of a bowling alley down at the end where the pins were. Mind you, the lanes on either side of the stage were fully open and people were actually bowling on them. There were no stage lights. We were shrouded in the strange haze of darkness and black lights surrounding us, sort of like a twisted neon hellscape. No one, and I mean no one, applauded at the ends of songs. They just kept bowling. The only sounds afforded to us as any kind of proof of human life at the other end of the bowling lane were the steady clonk of the bowling balls as they'd hit the slick lanes whooshing past us to our left and right, the smack of the pins being pummeled by the bowling balls, the whir of the balls returning to the bowlers through the machine, and the clank of the pins resetting. Somehow, we managed to maintain our sense of humor through it all. After a year or more of these types of gigs, Jason and I began to set our sights on places and horizons outside of our hometown of Rochester. We ended up deciding to relocate the band to Northern Virginia just outside of Washington, D.C., because Jay's girlfriend at the time had gotten into med school at GW. We saw it as a centrally located hub for our touring venture. And, being in a larger city, while serving as a challenge, also might provide bigger opportunities as far as we were concerned. Since Paul had a wife and children in Rochester, and no desire to relocate or go on the road, he graciously bowed out and we added two new members to the group that were also interested in getting out of town and getting on the road. A guy named Jim Ralston joined us on guitar and vocals. He was a strong singer and also a strong guitarist, so he would offer me not only support in the vocal department, but would allow me to put my guitar down on occasion and properly front the band. Jim also owned a box van, which would become our trusty steed, as we attached a hitch and trailer to it for our new venture. Our friend Joel Hurlburt from another local band called Officer Friendly would join us on bass and backing vocals, and we would set out on several years worth of adventures and misadventures as Exploding Boy version 3.0. We signed with a semi-national booking agency called Cellar Door Entertainment, who began booking us in all places from New York to Florida and as far west as Mississippi and Alabama. We would go on to play roughly 250 or more shows per year for three years, which would incidentally be the final three years of Exploding Boy's existence. The only catch with signing with the Cellar Door Agency would be that we'd need to learn roughly four hours worth of cover songs. We would be booked on a circuit of clubs that the agency handled, where we would be the sole entertainment for the night. In many cases, we'd do mini-residencies lasting multiple nights and sometimes multiple weeks on end in certain places. They were not signing us as an original act, but they did agree to shop us around for the occasional opening slot for national touring acts as they saw fit. As it turned out, we would only end up doing two of those types of shows in the course of three years. Once opening for the band Brother Kane at the House of Blues in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and a second time at an amphitheater in Richmond, Virginia, opening for Jackal, Pat Travers, and Cheap Trick. In early January of 1998, we were booked to play at a venue in Newport News, Virginia, which, as luck would have it, was attached to a five star Omni hotel. It was an extremely rare occasion where each band member ever got his own hotel room, let alone any type of privacy, but on this occasion, the venue did just that. Most of the time, we were put up in dingy and often rundown places owned by the venues, classified as the band house. Often, these band houses were shitty duplexes just off-site, or in the case of a club called Dirty Harry's in Key West, Florida, two rooms with blacked-out windows directly above a strip club. We always knew when it was time to start prepping for our show each night, when we felt the floor start rumbling with music from downstairs, and the faint sounds of, All right, guys, put your hands together for dinner! More on that in future episodes. Most of the time, If we had a hotel, it would be all four band members in one room with two queen beds. We'd all flip coins to see who would sleep with who, and then who would get to sleep above the covers and who would sleep under. And yes, that was definitely a thing we did. Glamorous on all sides. I can't recall the name of the venue in Newport News, and an exhaustive Google search has left me with nothing also. But I do recall the feeling of getting my own five-star accommodations for the evening fantastic. The club was down a spiral staircase from the lobby towards the back of the hotel. There was a separate dedicated entrance at the back as well. It was basically a glorified dance club with a large stage stuck smack in the middle of the place, with a decent amount of production and a huge rectangular bar off to the left and a huge multi-tiered dance floor. We played a lot of clubs like that back then that would book rock bands for two one-hour sets with an hour break in the middle, and nothing but pounding club music before, during the break, and after. It made no sense to us back then, and it still makes no sense to me now as I'm sitting here writing this. Without fail, the dance floor would be packed just prior to the start of our set, and people would then part like the Red Sea and leave the dance floor when we started. It's like they couldn't get far enough away from the stage and those dirty musicians. Then, The dance floor would become crowded again as soon as we'd take a break, and the dance music would start up again. We played clubs like this everywhere back in the day, from Nashville to Virginia Beach, and it was always the exact same thing. On this particular night during our first set, we took notice of a group of about 10 to 15 guys who looked like a cross between bikers and roadies for a rock band come in and occupy a pretty decent amount of real estate at the far end of the bar off to our right. Among the group was one guy with an unmistakable pink goatee and long black curly hair. We quickly realized that it was none other than guitarist for Arlington, Texas, heavy metal legends, Pantera, Dimebag Darrell, his brother, drummer Vinnie Paul, and what appeared to be members of their road crew. We soon found out that Pantera was performing the following night at Hampton Coliseum in Hampton, Virginia with Anthrax. Note. Pantera was formed in 1981 by the Abbott Brothers, guitarist Dimebag Darrell, and drummer Vinnie Paul. They are credited with developing and popularizing the groove metal subgenre and for being part of the second wave of the thrash metal scene from the late 1980s to the early to mid-1990s. Regarded as one of the most successful and influential bands in heavy metal history, Pantera sold around 20 million records worldwide and has received four Grammy nominations. Joel, our bassist, was a huge Pantera fan and wasted no time on our break making a beeline over and striking up a conversation with Dimebag and Vinny and the rest of their crew. Once they had been chatting for a while, Joel called the rest of us over and introductions were made all around. I remember being instantly taken with just how nice all these guys were straight away. I don't think we'd even said so much as hello before they were lining up shots of Crown Royal and passing them around to all of us. It turns out they had caught most of our first set and were highly complimentary, telling us that they all really enjoyed what they'd heard so far and were looking forward to hearing more. Over the course of the next hour, we all had several more shots of Crown, and I'm not sure whether Joel asked Pantera if they wanted to get up and jam with us on our second set or whether Pantera asked us if we wanted them to get up and jam with us, but the answer on all fronts was a resounding, fuck yes. By this time, the club was in full swing, and a number of people who were clearly Pantera fans and friends began to show up as well. It's pretty well known that Pantera owned their own strip club in Texas, and by this time, more than a few women who looked like they might be strippers, or exotic dancers, or what's the proper term even? Anyway, some women had shown up, and they started taking shots of Crown, courtesy of Pantera, right along with us. We briefly discussed what we would play and decided on enough songs that would cover just about an hour. Tush by ZZ Top, fittingly enough, and Plush by Stone Temple Pilots were just a couple of them, and it basically turned into a rotating cast of players. I'd sing a song, one of Pantera's road crew would sing one, Jay would play drums, Vinny would play drums, and so on. I owned a 1973 Gibson Les Paul gold top that I had out with me at that time. When Dimebag saw it, his eyes lit up and he said, I want to play that. I had no problem with this. I was also using a custom-built 100-watt 3-channel guitar amp built by a guy named John Now in Rochester, New York, through a 4x12 Marshall cabinet. This also seemed to be to Dimebag's liking immediately. A guy who I think was his guitar tech looked at him and then looked at me and said, "Brother." If we fuck anything up tonight, I don't want you to worry. We've got you covered no matter what. And before I could even muster a response or realized what the hell he was even saying, I watched him reach up to the controls on the amp and slide across every single knob with one hand until they were all up as far as they would go. In less than a split second after this guy had done this, Dimebag unleashed a barrage of blistering, punishing notes out into the club through my rig which had never been pushed even close to this level and our set was on unlike previous times in our experience in clubs like this the dance floor was now packed with people all freaking out and losing their minds at the crazed manic impromptu jam session that had just broken out most of it was a complete blur to me outside of a few moments which i remember incredibly vividly And once it was over, we found ourselves back over at the bar with Vinny, Dime, and their crew guys, who were all smiles, profusely thanking us for allowing them to crash our night. We didn't care one bit. The entire room felt like it was just going off from that point forward, in a way that I had never seen prior to that and still haven't seen since. More shots of Crown followed, of course, and more, and more. I'm not really sure just how many we all had until the last one made its way to me. I remember standing next to Dimebag, who was seated just to my left. He handed me a shot, and I just knew that I had reached my limit about three to four shots earlier. So I looked him in the eyes and said, Man, thank you so much. I think I'm done. And I will never forget this. It was almost like something out of a movie where all the music stops, and there's a giant sound of a needle scratching across a record, and all time slows down to slow motion. This intimidating-looking man with the pink goatee, this heavy metal god, who had been sweet and jovial toward me all night, gave me a death stare and a devilish grin as he handed me back the shot that I had just tried to put down. He touched my shoulder and said slowly and firmly, As if my very life depended on it. Drink it. And I'm sure by this point, in my drunken stupor, I said something along the lines of, uh, yes, sir, Mr. Diamondback, sir, whatever you say. For obvious reasons, the next bit of time is kind of a blur. I remember making my way up to my hotel room at some point, accompanied by our guitarist, Jim who, incidentally, was a single guy at the time and who was now with one of the aforementioned women in attendance who may or may not have been a stripper or dancer or something else, allegedly. She and he both followed me into my room because I was having trouble walking or even seeing straight at that point. And I remember vaguely Jim just trying to kind of take care of me. I must have been in pretty bad shape because all of this was... Pretty uncharacteristic behavior for Jim. I laid down on one of the beds and the room began to spin before I even closed my eyes. The girl that was with Jim was a bit of a wild card and a spitfire and clearly looking to either cause as much of a scene as possible or to try to be funny or to stir up some shit or something. Because the last thing I remember is her jumping onto the bed and standing over me, waving a feather boa in my face, saying, Don't get sick. Don't get sick. And then just laughing hysterically at me. And that is the last thing I remember until waking up still completely drunk in all my stage clothes, what seemed like only a few hours later. We had been so consumed and taken with the level of partying the night before that we hadn't packed up any of our gear. I wouldn't have been able to pack it even if I'd tried. I was still all set up and plugged in on the stage downstairs. We all were. Thankfully, sometime during the chaos of the previous evening, Jason, always our unofficial tour manager, had the presence of mind to clear with the club manager for us to tear it all down and load it all out in the morning. He was assured that it would be locked up and safe for the night. And it was. As I made my way down from the lobby, down the spiral staircase to where the club was, I had a brief moment where I nearly vomited, which would have been really bad for me, but much, much more unfortunate and unpleasant for all the wealthy folks who had stayed the night at the Omni and who were now busy starting their morning eating breakfast at the little restaurant at the bottom of the stairs just outside the doors to the club. Thankfully, I stifled things just long enough to make it to the bathroom inside the venue before I got horribly sick this would happen several more times. We managed to get all the gear packed and loaded and headed off to a nearby Shoney's restaurant for their famous all-you-can-eat breakfast buffet, a thing we took advantage of often at that point on the road because we usually had very little money. I'm remembering a very specific day where we were particularly short of cash when Jason finished calculating our budget for that given week and announced, Well, guys... We can each get something from McDonald's dollar menu today, and we can all get fries too. True story. I was unable to eat or even smell food. I retreated to the back seat of our van and I laid there sweating and shaking for God knows how long with one of the very worst hangovers I've ever had in my life. No other gig that Exploding Boy would play from that point forward would ever have quite as much impact as that one did. I was saddened years later at the news of Dimebag's death in 2004. A young, obsessed fan shot and killed him and three other people during a show by his band, Damage Plan. The tragedy took place on the evening of December 8th at the Alrosa Villa Nightclub in Columbus, Ohio. The 25-year-old shooter was killed by a Columbus police officer minutes after the violence erupted. The fan was reportedly upset that Pantera had broken up and supposedly blamed Dimebag for the band's split. Eerily, the deaths came on the 24th anniversary of the murder of John Lennon. Dimebag's brother Vinny would pass away years later suddenly in June 2018 at age 54 from severe coronary artery disease and a disease of the heart muscle called dilated cardiomyopathy. That night remains the most rock-and-roll experience of my entire life. Vinny, Dime, and their whole crew were nothing but kind, sweet, complimentary and really cool to us when they didn't have to be. I felt like they viewed us as peers. They didn't see us as any different or any lower than they were on the totem pole, and for that I will be forever grateful. Rest in peace Vinny and Dime, and thank you for the incredible memory and for the story that I got to tell here for the first time. Rock and Roll War Stories was conceived, written, and read by me, Michael J. Follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Mr. Michael J. M I S T E R M I C H A E L J. Join me next time for another installment, and thank you for listening.